Hello and welcome to the People and Culture Podcast, a show dedicated to exploring topical and emergent issues impacting on the world of work. I'm your host, James Judge. Joining me today from Adelaide on the People and Culture Podcast is Irma Ranieri. Irma is the South Australian Commissioner for Public Sector Employment. Irma, thanks for calling in. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, Irma, if your LinkedIn profile is correct, you've been Commissioner since July 2014. I have. Which I think was when the office was created within the Department of Premier and Cabinet. Yes. Uh, no doubt there are statutory obligations associated with the position, but what do you see as your primary role as a Commissioner? Well, actually, I... Um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave, I guess, the statutory bit aside because, I mean, there's a lot of reference to the role of the Commissioner in overseeing, I guess, the standards in the public sector through the Public Sector Act. Um, but if I can sort of cast my reflections on what I believe a Commissioner should be doing, it's to really ensure that uh, we are, um, the South Australian Government, as the largest employer, um, is, as the Act says, an employer of choice. Um, and not just to, I guess, use that term lightly, it's to actually say what does sort of a modern workforce look like? Um, often those two words um, are not associated with public services or public sectors. I'm very passionate about the work that the public sector does. It does um, help, I guess, society and community um, you know, live better kind of together, and the only way you'll do that is when you have a workforce, and that's 104,000 strong people that um, that really need to be um, connected to that community, know what service is about, and you've got to actually ensure that you treat them as a whole person rather than, you know, they, they clock in and out, and, and sometimes a media doesn't sort of, uh, it's not too kind to the public service, and I think it's important to, to harness the talent of all those people and so the focus for a commissioner should be is how well are we doing that um, and what sort of programs should we have in place to continue to evolve um, as, an, as an employer of choice. Um, so, look, I understand that the public sector is the largest employer in South Australia and you conduct an annual State of the Sector report. Uh, in 2017, the focus was on the themes of innovation, flexibility and diversity. So I wanted to start with the first of these and you, know, you talked about some uh, how the media portrays the public sector and it's probably safe to say that most people would think of the public sector as a follower rather than an early adopter. Uh, is that a, is yeah. that a fair categorisation? Um, I don't believe it is actually. Um, I know over the time in my career in the public sector, um, a lot of the changes that have occurred, I guess, um, around uh, regulation, um, how we might uh, go about uh, positioning, I think, um, the partnerships between community um, and government, uh, uh, you know, even introducing flexi time in the day, uh, looking at sort of flexible work arrangements and how people reconcile work and life, um, our domestic violence leave, um, and what we do for employees to ensure that we get the best out of them. I, I'd have to say in my area, and we are talking about how you embrace sort of people and culture issues is that I would I would say that we are um, on the forefront um, of, of innovation in those particular areas. So um, I think in some uh, places we need to, you know, stabilise, um, ensure the environment's right, ensure that, you know, 
We're doing all the things that uh, community and our citizens expect of us, law and order and the rest of it. But there is a very strong contingent in the government that, that kind of evolves and innovates in different ways in their particular field. Um, health in all policies, for instance, was a, a, a fantastic innovation um, of collaboration across many government agencies to ensure that, that we connected up um, a lot of our policy areas to ensure that sort of citizens and community considered um, the health and well-being of, of its citizens over the long term. So I think we are innovators. We tend not to talk about it. Um, we also get criticised as being um, risk averse. Um, and I want to talk a bit about our 90-day um, projects and, and how we tackle some of those changes. And what my experience is public servants in particular have got great ideas. They do uh, want to make changes. They've had those ideas. It's actually about culture and whether they have permission to do that or whether they somehow fear that if they did something differently that it in fact would have a detrimental effect on them. So it's about how you untap that talent, but there's a lot of it. So those 90-day projects was something I wanted to ask you about today and I know that that's been done to, uh, I guess, better engage with the community and to improve productivity. That 90 days sounds awfully ambitious. Uh, have all the projects to date found that time frame achievable? I think that the way I've, I need to frame the 90 days, it's it, public, public sector work is actually quite complex. And I think unless you um, are sort of doing something quite, you know, with a start and end date, it's actually very difficult to package something up from, from beginning to end in 90 days. But what you can do is actually take a complex problem. I call them sort of wicked challenges that the public sector has. Often it requires a number of agencies to come together. And the challenge for the 90-day projects is how do you go about thinking about, firstly, the problem you're trying to solve? So basically, instead of us sort of saying, well, we think the community needs this bit of regulation or we need this change, rather than saying, well, we think that this is the issue, but maybe we should ask those people that, are ha that we're serving to be part of the decision-making as to whether this is the correct approach. The 90 days is to actually try and move it to some other point. So it, it could be, to, to take an example, um, criteria-led discharge was one of our very first 90-day projects. That's um, nurses um, uh, discharging patients from hospitals rather than doctors. Now, they've been working on the concept of that for many years, um, and that is to understand what, you know, how, how a patient presents and, and what are the next steps to actually get them released from hospital. So the thinking had happened for many years beforehand. The issue uh, was basically we couldn't implement it because we had perceptions of industrial problems, doctors may not like it, um, you, know, you know, will there be risks if patients left at this particular time? So it was really the last bit of it where, you know, they wanted to, to implement this, that they got stuck because it really relied on the collaboration of the ambulance drivers, of the, um, of the doctors, of the unions and the rest of it. And what we did in 90 days was got all those people in the room and said, look, we've tested this as an idea or a policy. How can we make this work? And it, we did. We, we, we piloted. And I think that's the key is that we, we kind of said, look, if it's not going to work, Let's fail fast and go back and tweak it or not do it or whatever. But surprisingly, I think there's about um, 80 of them that we've done so far. 
most have had some sort of outcome. It might not be the outcome we intended when we started, but we've moved it along a bit further. And some have had some huge successes in reducing red tape, um, in ideas, in basically government getting out of the way. So it's it's not necessarily all projects are 90 days, but it's a good way of actually accelerating something um, and then basically saying, well, these days people are calling, oh, should we put a 90-day lens on them? And often I hear people say, we don't need 90 days, we need 30 or we could do it in a week. So it was more around the culture and how people collaborated and the journey we went on rather than the outcomes, but we got some great outcomes at the end as well. Partly, I think what I'm hearing is that it's a way to give permission to groups who would traditionally be siloed in terms of their profession or their department to work uh, in a more collaborative fashion. Is that a, is that a big thrust of, of how they work? Huge. It, it was the begin. It was exactly why we wanted to start doing them. And I think that uh, the biggest barrier in the public sector to innovation, I believe, is that we, you know, innovation does not happen. Um, in isolation, like it can't happen in one place. We deal with complex issues and those complex issues require, you know, several, nearly all agencies to come together, whether it's social welfare agency, whether it's health, whether it's police, whether it's prisons, all of those people have touch points for our most vulnerable citizens. And um, if I can take the multi-agency protection service, which was basically bringing police and health and education together, to look at domestic violence and, you know, when there was a report from the police and whether it were presented in any other part of the, the, the public service. The biggest barrier here was firstly they weren't sitting together because they were in individual agencies and the other bit was about data. And if we don't share information, no one, say, in a hospital will know that the previous night that, that a particular patient that might be there with bruises had actually had some issues around domestic violence from her partner or family member or whatever. So by hooking everyone up, you can actually assess the the problem in a in a in a much more um, collaborative. But more importantly, you end up saving people's lives, and people don't get confused about who do I now need to talk to about my information. A lot of that was about collaboration and not sharing data. And and we've got we're very data rich in the public sector. We've got a lot of information that can help us make some, um, uh, I guess, policy decisions. Uh, that might avoid um, some of the some of the issues that our sort of citizens have in the first place, and that was a that's still going, um, and it's it's an amazing outcome. So, thinking about that particular project, is it the case that you take people out of an organisation? Uh, you know, how does it work in practice? I'd be very interested to understand if there's a particular model that that works for every 90-day project or they're all constructed a little bit differently? They're all constructed differently um, and that's we do the sort of design workshop beforehand. That goes to my point about saying what well, what is the problem we're trying to fix here rather than saying, look, we have a problem, we think this is the solution, let's just do it in 90 days. So there's a, so a lot of thinking beforehand about what it is that we want to do and, and that's not just with agencies, that has to be any external people that are affected by this decision, whether it's an association, whether it's a um, an industry body, or whether it's citizens around EPA type matters. But when you take the MAPS project, the issue, and it's often these sorts of things that, that happen in government, the issue was basically there wasn't a co-location space for all these people. Now, you know, where do you get police, health, um, education sitting together? So the biggest issue was to find a co-located 
open space area where all of these people would work together. And that was about four or five years ago. And we now have a place that they are all, they're physically located together. They still belong to those agencies, but they now work in a physical location. And I remember when we first started, the police came in their uniform, their computer systems didn't talk to each other, they shared data every morning. Now, if you went up there four years down the track, you wouldn't know who's from police department, you would know who's working in what agency. They are just there. They've got the list of what happened the previous day and they work through the issues. And it's a really good example of sort of collaboration, public service in action. They don't have to be in a physical department space. They're not there with their badges or whatever. They're actually working on solving, you know, the problem and having the sort of a citizen at the, at the heart of it. It's a, it's a wonderful example um, of of that sort of, and uh, Rosie Batty actually came here to have a look at it. So we were, you know, I think this this was the model that the UK had, but we were one of the first or the first in Australia to uh, to do this. Now they'd been thinking about it for a while. The ninety day bit was actually we thrust people together to work together, and it was around that collaboration and open open plan sharing data. You know, and that's often the bit that actually stops us from doing it. Some reason that this data is too confidential for us as public servants to, to share with each other. And the MAPS you refer to, just, just for our listen, listeners, that's an acronym for, uh, this is the domestic and family violence piece you, you're talking about? Yeah, it's a multi-agency protection service. Some of the other themes uh, in that sector report, um, innovation was there, flexibility and diversity was another one. Thinking about diversity, how is that concept being embraced and implemented? Well, firstly, I think that you asked me in the beginning about, you know, my career. Um, diversity for me is about representing, I guess, the community um, in all its form. So whether it's cultural diversity, disability, Aboriginal employment. So but then it then it's a sort of a deeper level around diversity in thinking. And so you'll see some of the work that I've done in my early years as commissioner is to reissue the code of ethics which is one of the key things I um, am responsible um, for across the public sector but for the first time we embedded those values and behaviours that uh, that I uh, worked so hard when we were doing the sort of public sector reform I talk about the 90-day projects collaboration is one of them and engagement service um, so the embedding of those values in the code of ethics was the first step for me to say actually diversity is about thinking as broadly as we can about the community and the only way we can do that is if we have those, those that richness um, in, in the thinking, the richness in backgrounds um, and we have of course some targets. So there's a 2% target for Aboriginal employment, disability hasn't really moved a lot prior to me coming into the role and it's still moving slowly. The other area of course that I'm very passionate about is gender diversity, 50% of the population women or uh, maybe slightly more and when you looked at some of the senior roles in particular because government has around 64 percent um, population of women that work in it often in the lower levels um, the decision making is still not representative of that diverse community so that's how I see it I've experienced it I guess as a as a woman that has worked through the ranks there's some of the rules and the way the public sector is organized um, doesn't kind of um, reconcile with the flexibility that often women require because they do spend time out of the workforce 
uh, in the early years with their children and certainly during my time it was it was difficult then to try and get back in with your career once you took a few years out having having sort of several years out having your children but that's the depth of what um, I see as diversity I think the work that we're doing here is around uh, ensuring that we get to as close as 50% gender equality. Now, I'm not doing that myself, but we have got a strategy. I would have talked about that in the report. There is a gender equality uh, strategy and leadership that has been signed off by the Senior Management Council here, which are all our chief executives or secretaries, I think they're called, in other jurisdictions. And within that, we're tackling, you know, issues around unconscious bias, um, how we might describe senior roles, um, sponsoring programs, uh, mentoring programs. I've announced my own um, mentoring program. I'm mentoring uh, 10 women across the public sector. Aboriginal employment is up. So we're nearly at 48% for the women in executive roles. Aboriginal employment is creeping up to 2%. But that's about trying to deal with all the sort of systemic issues. So there are very few leaders, Aboriginal leaders, We now have a frontline leadership program for Aboriginal people. Uh, We've launched our Leadership Academy. Uh, We're ensuring that there are Aboriginal people that will go on those programs. So it's about ensuring that that we start to allow people that that have got those different backgrounds, we make the public service or get the public service to be a lot more culturally sensitive to enable us to be better decision makers for our community. It's simple as that. What about flexibility? I know that the Queensland government's done some interesting work in this area. What's happening in South Australia? Yep, I'm aware of the Queensland work. Um, I think the thing the, diff, the thing that we're doing in South Australia is just we just get on and do it. So, in fact, what happened was that uh, a bit of a story behind this because the chief economist and I were talking about, I guess, the high unemployment of young people in South Australia and we often they're going to the eastern seaboard and... Uh, and, and he was sort of talking about if we could actually have more people ha- being able to have the option to work part-time or um, basically take time out to experience something different, like maybe starting up a business and allowing them some time out of work, we could then actually create a bit more opportunity for young people to at least come into the public sector, get some experience so they could have something on the CV that sort of said, and, and we have such a great richness of kind of experiences in the public sector. So we talked about it. We, we presented it to the Senior Management Council and, and, we, and the Premier basically made an announcement that, that it was called Flexibility for the Future. Um, it was basically giving each agency a target of, I think, uh, and, and a lot of them already have part-time. I mean, the Education Department, for instance, has a very high proportion of part-time people. But Flexibility for the Future was, if not, why not? And that is to say that people didn't have to convince their leaders. Uh, a lot of people are afraid to ask for it. They basically, the manager had to actually say why they couldn't actually give people flexibility. Um, I thought that was sort of pretty simple. Premier sent out a direction. But the anecdotal stuff that came out of that is that there are a lot of people who won't even ask for it because people don't believe in work, workplace sort of flexibility. They don't believe in some jobs being able to be done part-time or job share or sort of different different parts of the day doing things. But I'm really, really excited. So we gave each agency a target. Um, so if they were already at 50%, then we'd say you'd got to increase it sort of by another 10%. So they all got a target. And we asked uh, places like education and others to go in non-traditional areas 
for instance, in, you know, so I guess in teaching they might have it, but in some of the more senior roles, how they might do it. And that if not, why not is, is what's there. And it's just created this, this change in people's confidence to ask for it. And now we're slowly seeing the recruitment of graduates and trainees to, now it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, they replace that person. It gives them flexibility to be able to use that money to actually employ a graduate. So we're hoping by the end of this year, there'll be about 800 graduates. We're looking at 1,400. That includes health with dental dental graduates and stuff. So we're including all the professions, but we're hoping to get to 1,400. And it's happening. And people, uh, we're doing it with chief executives and they're committed to it. So, you know, it's, it's, I'm really, we tend to do this in South Australia. We tend to kind of say, oh, let's just pilot a bit of this. Let's just have a look and see how it goes. Let's implement. And what happens is it tends to grow. And this is certainly happening with the flexibility for the future program. I did a road trip. I went around to regional areas and here in here in um, the city and actually uh, gave a presentation. So, so as many public servants were aware of what they could ask for. So it's about empowering people to ask for it. And if their managers weren't supportive, they would come back and seek some support. We gave them toolkits. It's all on our website about how you asked for it. And we've also done doing done and are doing training for managers about how they handle, you know, creating, uh, just playing around with jobs or carving jobs so people could actually have that flexibility. So it's been a wonderful program. So it's a, a, empowering staff to be able to, to ask those questions, targeting new targeting new recruits, graduate programs, and also, I guess, changing the onus in, in terms of how uh, managers think about flexibility. Yep. And I can, there's been lots of stories about, you know, people have come to me and anecdotally talked about um, leaders who would never list, would never uh, support um, flexible work arrangements. And there's been some sort of some, some really enlightening stories, but some that haven't been so good. And that's just because a particular leader has a view that part, they don't believe in part-time employment, basically. And um, if people are trying to reconcile a very sick parent or um, it's it's not just about children, it's about people wanting to volunteer. It's you know, helping um, someone, a friend, or a, you know maybe with a terminal illness. And some of the stories I've heard about the lack of support in that area, I think uh, it's just been an eye opener for me, but it has empowered individuals to ask for it. And in fact, someone did say to me when they did ask for it, they, they went along with the, the announcement around flexibility for the future and the Premier's direction and said, well, actually, I think you need to tell me why I can't do this. So I, I think that it's helping shift culture. These things take a while, but it, I'm really proud of the fact that um, that's the sort of thing that will make us an employer of choice. Okay, I wanted to um, go back to some of your other roles which you had prior to uh, becoming the commissioner and looking at your uh, your CV, I can see that you've had a, a series of, of different roles in the public sector and a few stints consulting. What do you think's been the most challenging role that you've had? I think my most challenging role, of this one's pretty challenging, I have to say, but I think the reason why I wouldn't pick this one is that when I was kind of in the middle management um, level and I'm in having, I was working at a university here, I, I'd say that that was the most challenging, mainly because I actually always been quite innovative in what I want to do um, that, that helps build culture in organisations. I think there was the appetite um, at the highest level at the university 
However, um, I think that when you aren't at a very senior level and as a woman, um, I felt that those ideas um, either frightened people or threatened and I found it really difficult being, I guess, stopped um, and not, I guess, not supported as a leader or as someone who had ideas and to the point where my voice wasn't heard. So the most challenging role without sort of speaking about the role itself has been the one where I believe that it, it what, what we could have done would have great outcomes for the organisation. But personally, um, I wasn't allowed, that wasn't, I guess, supported. Um, in fact, I wasn't respected. So I have to say when I didn't have a leader that actually allowed me to flourish and a leader that perhaps where where they don't lead with sort of trust and um, a level of professionalism and sort of open thought is probably, and I've had a few of those in my time, and I I think they're the worst experiences uh, for me because you just don't feel, especially if you're lacking confidence, if if you've come out of having children and a family, trying to reinstate yourself into the workforce, it becomes very difficult to believe in yourself when when others don't believe that your voice is worthy of actually um, doing things. And I, I think that I, I'm not very I've built skills, but I'm not I'm the same person doing this role. But I have a much stronger voice. Uh, but they're the, the experiences that also um, I think make you a lot stronger. And actually, you have I have a very strong level of resilience. And I think it's those experiences that help you build that resilience um, as you go forward. But but it's not always easy doing the things that, that I that I do. I think people always talk about sort of soft skills. Um, uh, this is the hardest thing to do. It is a challenge every day to kind of make sure that uh, people are working with the right sort of attitude and, and allowing people to, to be their best. And when I wasn't allowed to be my best was probably my worst experiences. So it sounds like it's a, a lack of the positional power and confidence uh, to, to actually push your agenda, yep. um, especially if you've been out of the workforce for, for, for a time, as you, you said you had. Well, I was doing consulting. So, but, but it's how people view your, you know, I think that uh, people, I was doing consulting when I was out of the workforce, but people didn't value that, and especially, I guess I, I came out of the public service as well. But you're right. I think I think confidence is a big one. Um, and uh, I think don't underestimate the role a leader plays in in how how people view themselves and how they value themselves and in fact and how they grow. Mm. Um, and it makes a massive difference if people are out and the outcomes are unt- it's the untapped potential of doing that that, that I think people people don't realize or the opposite where people go that's it I'm, I'm just going to clock in and out because I don't I, I don't feel like I'm being valued here nor. Not, not even in my work, but not as a human being. Yeah, I guess that's that's a really interesting point. And you you talked about soft skills. I often think that soft skills is a misnomer. People think of hard skills as you know engineering, or um, uh, and, and soft skills as these other intangible competencies that you're supposed to have. My view is that it's that it's those things. If, you know, I, I think it's an. It's, we're talking a lot about that in um, in our leadership academy, as probably many other jurisdictions are. If you don't address those issues, it will be, it will be the, I think, the Achilles heel of any organisation. You know, if you don't have people aligned, you're not clear about what you're expecting them to do, and more importantly, you're not nurturing them 
to actually be their best, not only will you not get those outcomes, but you will basically, people become quite demoralised and they're not growing as individuals. And look, innovation only comes from those people actually believing that you actually will give them the freedom to actually do it differently. And I think you won't you won't believe the sort of outcomes. I think 90 days were about actually people just believing in themselves and having a go and having the permission. Um, they did the rest for themselves. I kept thinking, really, is it this easy? But you have to have natural talent for making sure that those people are, feel valued and they're above you, basically. They're delivering. You're just getting things out of the way. Okay, so looking ahead at 2018 and maybe to 2020, how do you think the public sector might change, uh, whether it's specific jobs or the way work is conducted or outcomes delivered? Have you got any, got any views on that? Look, I, yeah, I do. Firstly, I, I think that we're all gonna we're gonna need people to to do to do certain things. I think they will be value add jobs. I, I know that we've been talking a lot in the public. I mean, everyone's been talking about you know um, the future of work and what will happen to workers. I think there's one one element is what can we do with the data we have? Uh, what can we do to, I guess, deliver services quickly? I mean, th- there's one element here, which is, you know, you go online. You, you try and remove as much red tape as you can, get citizens involved in the, in the discussion about how they'd like to serve themselves or they'll do it themselves anyway. So I think there's an element of public service work that whether we like it or not, our community will serve themselves differently anyway, whether they, they Google the doctor or whether they... Um, you know, won't step into our services at SA centres because they're going to just do everything online and it might not be the public service that does it. So there's that element to it. If there's an element to those predictive, you know, I talked about data, but how we can use everything that we've got to predict, I guess, crime or predict um, health outcomes for people and the rest of it. So I think you know, whether it's artificial intelligence or whatever, is how do we use that information to actually, you know, provide it, serve it. I'd like to see a lot more of our information up online so we don't have to waste our time looking things up. People can serve themselves on that. The work itself, you know, certainly I'm hoping that I could have done myself out of a job, but I just keep feeling busier. The work then of, of public service workers is what is it that we're going to do that's going to add more value to um, how we might address recidivism, how we address crime or how we work together with community for homelessness or how we work with our NGOs around implementing an NDIS or how do we help people with disabilities. So the value add is how do we connect with our community to add sort of richness in their lives and help them, which is why we join the public service in the first place. I don't think those jobs will be replaced Less, there are no human beings on the earth and I don't think elements of those jobs will ever be replaced because we all need each other. We need to nurture each other to actually grow. But it's about getting rid of the things that, that are sort of a lot of red tape that's not necessary um, and how you might regulate or how you allow the industry to regulate themselves. Uh, and I think that that's the sort of innovation challenge for the public service think ahead um, but I think it's going to happen to us anyway. Even if we can't think of it, we're going to turn around and actually say, well, I don't, I don't think that that's adding any more value. We can go and do something else. But we're always going to, I think we always need that human element 
um, and certainly I would expect the community would want it. I don't like getting into a debate about the size of the public service though, like people talk about how many you should have per capita. If it's a really great humming public service and people are getting what they want, then the size shouldn't matter. Irma, thanks for joining us today on the People and Culture podcast and telling us a little bit about what's been happening in the South Australian public sector. Thanks. It's been great, James. I've been talking to Irma Ranieri, the South Australian Commissioner for Public Sector Employment. To find out more about the South Australian Office of the Public Sector and the Commissioner, visit publicsector.sa.gov.au. You've been listening to the People and Culture Podcast with me, James Judge. If you found the show useful or you think a friend or colleague would be interested, please feel free to share on social media. You can also write a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or where you listen to your podcasts. Connect with me via LinkedIn or Twitter. My LinkedIn profile is simply James Judge. My Twitter handle is James A. Judge. Thanks for listening.